in a day, in a day it's going to be May 1st. And uh, a couple years ago I went to my local bookstore and it was May 1st. And they were closed and they had this broadside posted on their door written by Gary Snyder, the great poet, the hero of Dharma Bums, uh, wonderful environmentalist. So this broadside was on the door of the bookstore. Let's drink a toast to all those farmers, workers, artists, and intellectuals of the last 100 years who without thought of fame or profit, whose motivations were compassionate and humanitarian, worked tirelessly in their dream of a worldwide socialist revolution, who believed and hoped that a new world was dawning and that their work would contribute to a society in which one class does not exploit another, where one ethnic group or one nation does not try to expand itself over another, and where men and women live freely as equals. What we have now is nervous third world fundamentalism and developed world global greed the failure of socialism is the tragedy of the 20th century. And on this day, May Day at least, we should honor the memory of those who struggled for the dream of what socialism might have been and begin a new way again. Gary Snyder, May Day toast for the workers of the world. You might want to uh, think of them on Wednesday. You might be one of them on Wednesday. Maybe you could picket your, your place of employment. <laughs> Tell them your Dharma teacher suggested that you do that. <laughs> Fine. But that's not what I really want to talk about tonight. I mean, it's very, very much connected to what I want to talk about tonight. And that is my passion, which is to tell our new story about ourselves. And uh, I'll start by just having you reflect on the fact that we are now spinning around on the surface of the Earth, spinning around the Earth's axis at about 1,000 miles an hour, all of us together on this little rock. And the, the whole rock is spinning at a, around the sun at about 66,000 miles an hour. And you don't even have to hold on. <laughs> because the earth is holding on to you. You are earthlings. And the question is, earthlings, what are we doing here? <laughs> Existentially speaking, I mean, isn't that the big question? Where, where did we come from? Where are we going? Who are we? That's the, the number one spiritual question. Uh, what is this life all about? What is this universe? Why, why is there a universe? How did, why is there a me? How did we get here? What, what's going on? Ever since we grew these big brains, we've been asking ourselves these questions. And to answer them, we've come up with some pretty fantastic stories, you know, about gods and demons and heavens and hells. And, and over the course of our history on this planet, we've 
become so arrogant as humans, we've come to believe the entire universe was made just for us. That's really what we've been believing, that we are specially created and separate from the rest. We're given dominion over it all. Our major religions have come to believe that we don't even belong here. They, they see this planet as a kind of training planet, you know, where you come to learn some lessons or burn off some karma, and then you get to go off to some other place where you truly belong. But that story, that story is dysfunctional. <laughs> it takes our reverence away from this world, and it removes the human from the web of life. And it's concerned with individual salvation, not the common good. And it may be partly why we are doing so much damage, or have been doing so much damage to our environment, the ecosystem, We need a new story, and luckily we're getting one. We're getting an upgrade of our mythology, is what it is. And our new story is telling us that we are intertwined with all and everything. In physics, they call it entanglement. You know, I, I move my finger, the whole universe is involved. And our new story is telling us that we are related to all the life that's ever lived. Bound together by the elegant spiral of the double helix. We are cell brothers and cell sisters. The story of evolution is everybody's biography. So we're getting this whole new story about who we are in the scheme of things. And this new story is based on science, so it must be true. I call it the latest, greatest story ever told. This new story, this new mythology, It's partly, I think, what's causing some of our confusion in the modern age. That we're kind of we're kind of in a transition period. We're a little stuck. I mean, there's the old stories are a little too old and have kind of lost some of their meaning, and the new stories are a little too new to really have gained any weight in our psyche. That confusion time, a transition time. Nietzsche said that Buddhism was a religion for the end and fatigue of civilizations. Because with Buddhism, you start asking the basic questions again. Like, who are we? Where, where did we come from? How do we fit into the scheme of things? And these transition periods happen frequently in history. I mean, they're not uncommon. I like to r realize that the descendants of a family living near the Mediterranean could have gone from believing in Kronos to believing in Zeus 
to believing in Jupiter, to believing in Jehovah, and then adding Jesus, all in the last five millennia. Even among the gods, there's occasional regime change, you know? It's, and I feel like I and many of people I know, and my peers, we, we got caught in this changeover, this transition. I remember trembling in synagogue on Yom Kippur, praying to Jehovah to write me into the book of life for another year. I even had an image of this God, and even though he was the Jewish God, he looked Italian. Uh, you know, the guy up on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel with the long flowing white hair and the long white beard. God as, as an aging bohemian. Because remember the Jews said you weren't supposed to make a graven image because God was everywhere? That was a huge leap of spiritual consciousness and saved us a lot of money on statues. <laughs> you know, you put a golden calf on your altar, it could fall off and break. It, uh, but then the Italians inherited the Jewish God and couldn't resist trying to paint, paint him. But I don't, go, I don't go to synagogue very much anymore. Uh, now I have a private altar at home. How many of you have a private altar at home? Quite a few. On my altar, I have the statue of the dignified meditating Buddha, a little wooden head of the Chinese laughing Buddha. I have a picture of the goddess Kali. I have a little figurine of the native trickster coyote, uh, nature, certain nature fetishes. Other deities get shuffled onto my altar from time to time. I'm basically a spiritual slut at this point. <laughs> and, you know, all the, bring them all, all the gods. This, it's too difficult for one god to work on. And sometimes I look at my altar and I think, I'm in recovery from monotheism. You know, that's what's going on here. And none of these gods have a green card to work in America. <laughs> They've all been smuggled into this country by people like me. So now I've developed a kind of new age philosophy of life, kind of, uh, of religion at least, uh, believing that all the gods and all the symbols and all the ceremonies are all pointing to the same mystery. And I have great reverence for that mystery and for whoever or whatever created it all, who I now refer to as the artist, formerly known as God. <laughs> yeah, I like it too. Kind of rings true for me. And, you know, really the whole God dispute and the wars, the holy wars, it's all about names. I mean, I think someday we'll, the heavens will part and we'll hear this booming voice, humans, you all got my name wrong, and I forgive you. But I'm the only one working on this, this issue. I think, see, if we could get, <laughs> we call a summit meeting, get all the gods to come together, summit meeting. 
And we beseech them, each of us beseeching the God of our choice, uh, to adopt a common name, which would help to solve all the troubles that we're having on earth over deities, old deities. Uh, so let me make a suggestion. Most of the deities, a lot of deities, seem to have a name that ends in the syllable ah. Jehovah, Allah, Brahma, Krishna, uh, Tara. So let's get all the gods to accept the common nickname, ah. That is the first sound we make when we're born, kind of wah, ah, ah. And the last sound we make, we sigh, dying, ah. So our first and last breath would automatically be a prayer. And it would give us, finally, a good reason to use the word awesome. <laughs> so anyway, that's, that's my scheme to fix our God problem. Now, I don't know how many of you believe in God or not here, but I bet almost all of you believe the story of evolution is true. At least those of you with big forebrains. <laughs> But we don't get it yet. I don't think we really get it yet. It, the story's too new to have had any chance to kind of enter our psyche and the marrow of our being. We need, we need to sing this story and dance this story and tell it over and over again because it is the new story about who we are and where we came from. And uh, it's forgiving. It's hopeful. It's as full of awe and wonder as any Bible. So how do we integrate, how do we make this story come alive, this new mythology come alive in our culture and in our own lives? I think the Buddha Dharma and, and meditation are a wonderful way to do this. Because when we, when we meditate, when we bring our attention to our own body and mind and begin to experience it, we begin to notice the sort of generic quality of our experience and realize that it's not about, you know, we shouldn't take it too personally. We are a member of a particular species at a particular moment in the evolution of consciousness on this planet, and that's what we get. And the minute we sort of start to feel that and acknowledge that, everything becomes much more relaxed and easy. And it's not all about me and my story. And uh, I'm not getting it wrong. And I'm not, you know, it, that whole comparison bit kind of gets washed away. We're all in this together. We're all kind of stuck in this together. So maybe we need some ceremonies, some rituals to help us integrate the story. I, I thought it would be a good idea to start chanting the basic elements table. <laughs> Hydrogen, helium, lithium, beryllium, boron, carbon. It's got a nice mantra quality, doesn't it? Oms and ohms and... 
And that's what we're made of. That's what we're made of. You rub your upper and lower teeth together a little bit. Touch your knuckle or your knee. Feel the hardness of your bone. Your bones are made of calcium, phosphates, silicates, carbon, essentially the clay of earth somehow mysteriously molded into your shape, into this skeleton. Where else could these bodies have come from? Most of our body is liquid, and most of that liquid has the chemical consistency of the oceans. We sweat and cry seawater. We're not just on the earth, we're of the earth. We're composed of all natural earth ingredients. We are certified organic. <laughs> We're like earth sprouts that gained a lot of mobility, you know. And all of the heavy elements that make up our body were formed in the explosion of supernova at the early history of the in the early history of the universe. We are literally stardust. We are golden. <laughs> but Thich Nhat, Hanh, Thich Nhat Hanh says, once I was a cloud, once I was a rock. This is not poetry, this is science. And we now know that we are made of all the life that came before us. We are shaped out of, built out of, handed down the karma of many, 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 many different species and generations of species going back millions and millions of years. So right now inside your skull is a fully functioning reptilian brain, the brain stem, a fully functioning mammalian brain, the limbic system, and the new human brain or neocortex. And there is growing, growing scientific research to indicate that we use our new human brain, mostly to make excuses for the behavior generated by the other two brains. <laughs> that mostly we're not rational animals, we're rationalizing animals. <laughs> it's, you know, we, we really, we're, we're built out of all the life that came before us. What's really surprising is that we didn't notice this for so long, that we were really related to all the other beings. I mean, look at most of the other species of life, even insects or fish. See that we all, we all share this common floor plan. Uh, You've got a sensing and feeding device on one end of this elongated body. You've got whims of, limbs of some kind of locomotion branching out from this elongated body, wings or fins or arms. And you have, uh, in the middle, you have the, the uh, plumbing. And at the other end, you have the waste pipe. And, uh, you know, nature basically found this design and uses it over and over and over again. You'd think somebody would have noticed before about 100 years ago Story of Evolution, our collective autobiography. In 
each of us starts life as a single cell, right? The shape of an egg. And once the human egg is fertilized, the DNA code guides it through the history of life on Earth. The single cell grows into a multi-celled sphere, into a tubular worm-like body, and then it grows rudimentary fins and gills, webbed fingers and toes, features of reptiles and amphibians as we cycle through the DNA of our ancient ancestors. Even after we start to grow arms and legs, we resemble the embryos of pigs and rabbits. It happens in the warm sea of the womb, and at birth we repeat the exodus from the ocean and land in the world. We are so much a part of, uh, so similar to all the other beings. There was a, a woman who came up to the famous scientist, uh, Haldane, I, I thought I had a thing of his up here, but I can't find it now. Anyway, she said, I can't believe that a single cell, even given billions of years, could have evolved into this complex being that we are of containing a hundred trillion cells and, you know, with all the complexity and, and dazzle and brilliance of who we are. How could that have happened even in the billions of year history of evolution on, of life on this planet? And Haldane said to her, well, my dear, you did it in nine months. <laughs> if we could see ourselves in this story, we would find that our family increases a million, million fold. We will no longer be so lonely. Richard Dawkins illustrates the point like this. He says, everybody has a grandfather. So you take a picture of your grandfather, and maybe he looks a little bit like you. And your grandfather had a grandfather. And you look at his picture, maybe, and you might see a member of the same clan. And that grandfather also had a grandfather. And if you go back about 4,000 grandfathers, you start to see a whole different being, a whole different species of being, probably someone who your grandmother would never mate with, <laughs> no matter how drunk she was or how many camels he owned. Uh, and then you go back and back and back. Remember, this is, everybody has this. Every, this is everybody's story. Go back and back to the 150 to 175 millionth great-grandfather, which you, you all had one, and you pull out his picture, and it's a fish. <laughs> you are directly descended from a being who lived in the ocean and swam. If we see ourselves in this new story, we, we again find that our family increases a million fold uh, and we're all tied together by this mysterious molecule of DNA composed of four chemical compounds. Depending on how they're arranged in these long strings of coded information, DNA will contribute to the growth of a giant sequoia or an ant or a rose or a human being. It's this magical 
substance that separates life from non-life. It's phenomenal. Deoxyribonucleic acid, much too cold and clinical a term for this magic juice, this substance. So I am proposing and promoting a new acronym. Every time you see or hear the letters DNA, think divine natural abundance. Divine natural abundance. And as you may know, you share 99.999% uh, of your DNA is identical to the DNA of the person sitting next to you. Uh, we share almost 100% of the instructions that go to building and maintaining our being with the instructions for building and maintaining the Dalai Lama and uh, Oprah and House Speaker John Boehner. And <laughs> we share over 98% of our DNA with chimpanzees, nearly 90% with mice. That's because most of the instructions for building you and maintaining you are instructions for a basic mammal. That's a complicated thing to construct. You've got to have a little brain and a little nervous system and a little digestive system and an and a immune system and a metabolic system. That takes a lot of information. We share nearly 70% of our DNA with worms. And nearly 50% with yeast. So if I declare myself divine, is not the slime also divine? And if not, where do you draw the line? Who gets a soul? see, the story of evolution doesn't deny our divinity necessarily. It may call into question our exclusive divinity. Besides, a good case could be made that the entire universe was made just for bacteria. They were here first. And they've been around for a couple billion years. And they are everywhere. There are more individual bacterium in your mouth right now than all the humans that have ever lived on planet Earth. They have roads and churches and houses in there, a whole civilization between your cheeks. There's some speculation that, that the bacteria invented humans as a moving feedlot. You get room and board and a tour of the neighborhood, you know? One of the secrets, of course, to the bacteria's success is that they reproduce by just dividing. They don't have to take each other out to dinner first and just <laughs> have a nice day, have a nice day, you know. I tried to imagine the, I tried to imagine the, uh, the first living being, this first single-celled organism. See, we start telling our new story, not with Adam and Eve, but with a single-celled organism who also deserves a name. I think the first living being, Uno. <laughs> it's a good name. I think we should also give her, give her a, f a female identity. Uh, so you can imagine Uno's floating around on the ancient seas, just as happy as anybody could, could be at the time. 
not a lot of competition. And also no one around to eat Uno, you know? And there's, and, but Uno gets lonely because here's this fantastic existence and no one to share it with. I mean, like, look at that wonderful sunset, somebody. <laughs> so after a couple million years of this isolation, Uno decided she had to do something about it. So she pulled her little bag of chemicals evenly across her body and got up all the energy she could muster. And from the core of her being, she split apart and that was the beginning of evolution. And Uno fell in love with herself. <laughs> she started having twice as much fun and fell in love with herself. Now, it may sound to you like a case of narcissism, but actually, it's a wonderful spiritual lesson that really we should see everybody as being part of ourselves because that's the truth of the matter. We are all cellular cousins. Maybe we should make a big statue of Uno, place a replica in all the major plazas and malls of the world. Because every living being on earth can, can trace its ancestry back to Uno. <laughs> it's kind of silly, isn't it? Do you think the second half of her should be called Duo? Dua? Or Uno Two? I don't know. I can't decide. But now we're, we're a brand new kind of animal. Uh, and I hope you aren't offended by that, that uh, moniker or that name. Our, our great scientists uh, classify us as animals. I know a lot of you are in denial about that. You go to a supermarket or a cafe, there's a sign in the window, no animals allowed. People walk right through. No animals here. I think we should be proud to be part of this great kingdom of beautifully arrayed creatures. But we are a brand new kind of animal. We, our ancestors came down from the trees about five million years ago, three to five million years ago. Among them was an ape woman who the scientists have named Lucy, the mother of us all. So we can presume that the father of us all was Ricky. <laughs> and, and once we started hanging out on the ground more often, we started using crude stone tools. We, we became what is now known as homo habilis or handyman. That's what, that's what we were called then. Or not then, but now we call them then that. <laughs> and the handyman started standing upright more often. And pretty soon we were standing up all the time and we became what is now known as Homo erectus or upright human. And we're not talking morality. Uh, in fact, Soon after we stood upright, for obvious reasons, the loincloth was invented. But standing up was a really important moment in our evolution. I, I think that standing up actually not only created shame, it created pride. We thought we were above it all, all of a sudden, walking around on two legs. But 
it was an important moment in our evolution. It's associated with a rapid increase in brain size standing up. Now, you would think that uh, standing up would make our feet swell instead. <laughs> but here's the theory. Standing up <laughs> left our hands and arms free to work with tools. And, and spears and axes, chopsticks. And we needed more brain connections to control the more precise movement of our hands and arms. And so this feedback loop was created. Better hands, bigger brains, bigger brains, better hands. Eventually, we started migrating out of Africa because we had our arms free. We could carry our stuff around. <laughs> Nobody knows exactly why we left, <laughs> but probably to look for Chinese food, I think. <laughs> At the time, our brains were like half the size they are today, or else we would have figured out how to send out for Chinese food. <laughs> anyway, we started wandering around the planet, and uh, our brains kept growing and growing, uh, maybe because we got caught in an ice age or two had to think hard and fast how to stay warm. It would have been easiest to just grow a heavy coat of fur, uh, but we didn't really think of it at the time because our brains were too small. Uh, so we grew bigger brains and learned to make fire and then began sitting around that fire and telling stories about ourselves like this one, the story of evolution. Sometimes it's amazing to think that th this is my brain talking about its own origins. This is my brain on evolution. <laughs> and back there in the old days, we didn't look nearly this good. <laughs> At some point, our brain grew so big it outgrew our skull. And we had to grow a whole new skull rounded and dome-shaped here in front to hold the new, the new brain. Probably none of you are old enough to remember the old slopehead model skull. <laughs> so we grew this new skull and this bigger and bigger brain. And uh, about 40,000 years ago, our immediate ancestors appear, the Cro-Magnon people, and they start making masks and jewelry and having elaborate burial rituals. Obviously, having grown a brain big enough to start asking those big existential questions, you know, like, who are we and where do we go after we die? And is there an afterlife? And if not, let's invent one. And, uh, you know, they really, they started this whole, this whole thing that we're now involved in here. Uh, they became what we now think of as homo sapiens sapiens, twice wise or twice knowing humans, which is kind of like what we're trying to develop in meditation as a kind of maha consciousness, you know, a, that we know that we know. But considering how far we've gotten with this thing, uh, maybe it'd be better if we left it to mean we have to hear something at least twice before we know it. <laughs> anyway, 10,000 years ago, our really great, great, 
grandparents begin living in cities, practicing agriculture. The last 10,000 years has been a complete revolution in the life of this planet through the behavior of our species, primarily. Now we can fly off the planet out into space. We can see to the edges of the universe. We can see deep inside of matter. We know how things work in nature, chemistry, biology, physics. In just the last couple hundred years, we've nearly doubled the average human lifespan. Now you get twice as long to be yourself. Just a few generations ago, most of our grandparents were peasants. And now most of us are called on to operate fairly sophisticated machinery and absorb volumes and volumes worth of information in a lifetime. It's a whole new world out there, a whole new game. And considering that, I think we're doing a pretty good job of being humans at this moment in time. The evolutionary psychologists say we're working with brains designed for members of small tribes of hunter-gatherers. That would explain our addiction to shopping. <laughs> if it's out there, go get it. It may also explain our territorial ways and our confusion. But if we see ourselves in this story, this long story, we also find hope. Uh, because first of all, we see that we are a baby species. There were 100 million generations of dinosaurs and something like 10, 20 million generations of mammals before humans came along. We've had a few tens of thousands of generations of modern Homo sapiens. We just got these big brains. They didn't come with a good, a good manual, good instruction manual. We're a baby species. Humans should not be tried as adults. <laughs> so we're all forgiven in this story. And if we see ourselves in this story, we also see hope in that just 2,500 years ago, a blink of a blink of an eye in biological time, we had Socrates and Lao Tzu in China and the Buddha, the Axial Age, the beginning of a whole new leap of consciousness and self-awareness. Basically, our contemporaries are Darwin and Freud and Jung and Einstein and Hubble, we're just now getting a whole new picture of who we are in the scheme of things. And the more we find out about ourselves and the universe, the more wondrous the story becomes. Just think, less than a hundred years ago, we knew of one galaxy in the universe. The latest estimate is that there are 100 to 200 billion galaxies containing 30 to 50 billion trillion suns. Who are we now in that immensity? What has happened to our central place in the universe? Was it all made just 
for us to wonder about? This will confuse him. We now know that life has gone from a single-celled being to a being with a hundred trillion cells. That's you and me. And inside each of your cells is a two-yard long strand of DNA, which is one of the thinnest molecules known, just a couple atoms wide, wrapped millions of times around itself. You, get, you can get two yards of DNA into every one of your cells. And so if you stretched all the DNA in your body out end-to-end, you'd get about 126 billion miles of DNA. And it's like the whole history of life is etched into each one of your cells, volumes and volumes worth of information you carry in each one of your cells. You're amazing. You're walking, talking wonder. By the time it takes me to end this sentence, you will, your body will have created 10 million more cells. Renewing and replacing you moment after moment. Right now, your brain is processing an estimated 11 million bits of information a second. We hope. <laughs> wondrous, wondrous beings. And considering the story and the complexity of who we are and what, what has happened in life on this planet, it's hard to imagine that there's not something behind it, some purpose or some intelligence or some design of some kind. Scientist E.O. Wilson says, to imagine that the human being could arise due to random chance in the universe, is like trying to imagine a hurricane blowing through a junkyard and creating a 747. <laughs> Astonishing. I, I love this little poem by Hafiz. He says, Oh, wondrous creatures, by what strange miracle do you so often not smile? The mystery of it all with us right here, right now. Sometimes when I get discouraged, I try to remember. It's taken the universe 13.7 billion years to make me. That should be some cause for self-esteem. <laughs> what a project, you know? So we don't want to blow it. That's why I think what you're doing here is so wonderful. And on behalf of my species, I thank you again <laughs> for attempting to wake up to your own glory and your own wonderfulness and to see yourself co-rising and interwoven with all the wondrous beings on this planet. Let me just close with a little poem here. Actually, it's a little piece of writing by Albert Einstein. A human being is part of the whole. 
the universe. We experience thoughts and feelings as something something separated from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of consciousness. This delusion is a prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for a few persons nearest to us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle of love and compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. So let's sit for just a moment in silence before we leave. Perfectly human. <laughs>